Well, again, I hope you see the kind of the range of this passage of Scripture. It's interesting as we first look at it. We have, again, the response of the friends of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very interesting thing to see here. The response of his friends. And the response of his friends is somewhat surprising. Especially if you have maybe a newer translation where you have put where you have it put somewhat bluntly that his friends said basically he was he was mad, he was out of his mind. It shocks us. The King James says he's besides himself. It kind of maybe protects us from, from the shock of what his friends are saying. We're gonna take a look at that. But we see even worse the response of his enemies. His enemies now, not just the crowd that were gathering to hear him, not just the local folk, we might say, that were there in Galilee, but we have in this passage of Scripture something of an official delegation from Jerusalem. These scribes, you remember, were officials. These scribes, you remember, were not just a particular class or party uh, by way of what we might say in our day, denomination. They weren't just the Pharisees or the, or the Sadducees. Many of them were Pharisees. They were officials. They were experts in the law. They were, in other places in the scriptures, referred to as lawyers. They were the ones who would be able to examine and the ones who were able to make evaluations. And so again, and these ones were not just the local scribes from Galilee and the, in the northern part of, a, of the nation of Israel. These were officials from Jerusalem who were come down now to give this, this evaluation of this prophet from Nazareth. Who was this one that was healing diseases? Who was this one that was casting out demons? Who was this one that was doing these things on the Sabbath and who were making these stupendous claims? He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Who is this one? And you see this official delegation comes and they give, their, they, get, they give their evaluation. And we're going to see our Lord Jesus Christ give this very, very serious warning. It's a very interesting thing. Our, our minds are immediately drawn to the seriousness, this, this, this sin that knows no forgiveness. And we often focus there and it's understandable. We should. But what's wonderful, and it's so consistent with the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, what's wonderful is that couched in this very serious warning is a great gospel truth. All manner of sin that a person may commit can be forgiven. And while there is an unpardonable sin, there is couched again in that very severe warning a great gospel fact that all manner of sin whatsoever a person may commit can be forgiven. We'll bring these two things out together here. And what I want to do as we work through this passage of Scripture, I want to, again, handle it not only what I might say contextually, we're going to get kind of work through the passage of Scripture. We're going to see, really, in one sense, that this is all about reactions to the person and to the ministry of Jesus Christ. His friends are reacting. His enemies are reacting. The challenge of the passage will be, how do you react to the ministry of Jesus Christ? You see? We're going to take a look at these things, and what we're going to see by way of it, not only interpretively, contextually, we're also going to have to deal with it, what we might say, thematically. This grave sin of, of blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, what is it? Is it something that a person can, can commit today? Is it something that we need to be fearful of in our day? We have to deal with these things. But the passage of Scripture, again, also has to be dealt with not only interpretively and contextually and thematically, it has to be dealt with pastorally. You see, again, as a, as a pastor, I must apply this passage of Scripture to your souls. I must ask the Spirit of God to, 
to open your hearts, that, that the truth of this passage of Scripture may have its full effect within your heart and your life. And so by God's grace, what I hope to set before you today by way of a primary doctrine is, is very much specifically the text itself, which is essentially this, that that grave sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, is that action whereby individuals attribute to Satan the work of the Spirit of God in the life of Christ. Specifically, that's what it is. Contextually, that's what it is. So many times we, we look to this sin and we're fearful of it. As I was saying to both uh, Rick and Charlie as we were praying this morning, how many of us have at one time in our lives been fearful of having committed the sin of, of, uh, of the unpardonable sin? We look at our own track record and we think of the things that we've been weighed down with and we're, we wonder, did I commit the unpardonable sin? Well, I hope to show you from this passage of Scripture again, that sin as we see it here is very specific. It's specific to the attributing of the, uh, of, of the work of the Spirit of God to Satan in the life of Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to do by way of the, the, the primary principle. The way we're going to handle the text contextually and preach through the text is along, with the, is, is along the three-point outline. Number one, we're going to, sh- we're, we're, number one, we're going to uh, take a look at the fact that, um, and I'm sorry, just here for a minute. And number one, we're going to take a look at the, at, at, at the fact that it is inescapable that we must respond to the person of Jesus Christ. This is the first point of our outline. And in the, the inescapable fact of the gospel is that we must respond to Jesus Christ. Now, why am I bringing this out? Because as I said before, that's what we see in these passages. They are responses to the ministry of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at the inescapable fact that a person must respond to Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're going to take a look at the various ways in which people respond to the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. His friends responded one way. His enemies responded another way. But as I said before, how do you and how do I respond? And then thirdly, we're going to see the fatal way in which some responded to the ministry of Jesus Christ. They saw in this ministry of Jesus Christ not the works of the Spirit of God. Or should I say it this way? They did see the works of the Spirit of God in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But because of the hardness of their sins, they attributed it to the work of Satan. Blasphemy, you see. Severe, severe sin. And so that's what we'll do here today. Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention then to is to uh, verses 20 and 21. And notice what we have here <clears throat> in uh, uh, verses 20 and 21 of, of Mark chapter 3. And the multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Now in this passage of scripture, it's kind of very interesting. It's very picturesque in one way. We have our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, again, having just called his disciples, I'm sorry, he had just called his apostles to himself. You remember we looked at that last week. There was the Lord Jesus Christ calling the 12, disciples, uh, calling, calling the 12 apostles. Uh, previous to this time, he had done great things. Uh, the work of Jesus Christ was, was, was spreading far and wide. And of course, crowds were coming to see this, uh, this wonderful uh, prophet from Nazareth, this wonderful prophet of Galilee. And there were so many people coming that they were crowding in on him. And as, as the passage says there, they couldn't even eat. And the idea here is this, is that the ministry that our Lord was engaged in was involving him in such continuous activity that he couldn't even take time for himself. And this is what aroused the concern of his friends. His friends see this and again, and they, they, they think in one sense they have to save him from himself. Here is this one who is so engaged in all this activity that's, stirring, that's causing all this stir that we have to step in. 
I think if they lived in our day, they would have said, you know, we need to do an intervention. They need to save Jesus from himself. And I think, again, that we see this here in the passage of Scripture. But what I wanted you to see is essentially this, even before we begin to develop this idea of what his friends were saying, both his friends and his enemies respond to him. And that's what we see about the person of Jesus Christ when he is truly and accurately set forth. He is not a person who can be ignored. He must be responded to. And the only way in which people in our day cannot respond to Jesus Christ is when he's, when, is when, he's, when he's set forth in an inaccurate manner. When he's not set forth either as dealing with our sins or in saving us from our sins. You see, if I present Jesus Christ to you in such a way that he never impinges on your personal sin, well, you can dismiss him. But if I present Jesus Christ to you in such a way that he exposes the depths, can I say it, of the depravity of our hearts, this gets a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? Or maybe you're here and you're under the weight of the depravity of your heart. And I present to you Jesus Christ as comforting your soul, offering to you forgiveness. You see, there's a response to Jesus Christ. He's not this man that can be ignored. He must be responded to. And he is responded to. And again, as I said, as, as I say here in this first part of, the, of, of our sermon, we see that our Lord Jesus Christ is, is being responded to by his friends. Now, it's very interesting what we see here in, um, in, uh, in, in, uh, in, in these two verses. And again, how the, how the people are coming to him and, and kind of crowding him out. And the reason why this is happening is because all the way through this gospel, what we've seen over and over again are these great acts of compassion and, the, and, and this miraculous power. We've seen at least five specific acts where our Lord Jesus Christ either was delivering from demonic oppression or, or healing of some kind of, a, some kind of physical malady. Listen to the passages of scripture that we see. In, in, in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 28, we have the deliverance of the man with the unclean spirit. And then you remember when Jesus said to him, when the unclean spirit confronted him, or Jesus confronted the unclean spirit, Jesus said to the unclean spirit, hold thy peace. We're going to see this is going to come up here in a little bit. And then in verse 31 of Mark chapter 1, we read of, uh, of our Lord uh, uh, healing Peter's mother-in-law. Mark uh, verse 31. And they came and, they took her, and he came and he took her by the hand and he lifted her up and immediately the fever left her. We see that throughout Galilee, Jesus was doing this kind of work. Verses 38 and 39 of, of Mark 1. And he said unto them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore I came forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee and cast out devils. You see, this is why the crowds are coming. There was the healing of the leper in verses 40 and 41. And there came a leper unto him, beseeching him and kneeling down to him and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion. There's our compassionate Savior. Put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. And then in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, there was the healing of the paralytic. You remember the man let down uh, through the roof. And our Lord Jesus Christ, again, by way of the authority of his person, what does he say? Not merely you're healed. He says, thy, my son, thy sins are forgiven. You see our Lord Jesus Christ delivering this man from the power of his sin and delivering this man from the bondage of his physical infirmity. He truly is the Lord who heals our diseases and, and, and forgives all of our iniquities. What a wonderful thing we see in the Savior. And this is, again, this was the cause of his popularity, and this was the cause of the opposition, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the opposition that was starting to uh, come up uh, uh, against him. So again, all this is going on. 
And our Lord Jesus Christ is truly the center of attention. <clears throat> He's the center of attention of the common people, we might say. He's the center of attention by way of the religious leaders. And now this is all, and, and now the, his friends come to him. And as I said before, they're trying to save him from, from himself. And it's interesting is when we look at verse 21. And when his friends heard of it, that's kind of interesting. His friends could be used, uh, uh, the idea, not only his associates, but also his family members as well. His friends come to him, and again, they are seeking not, again, to say something derogatory about the Lord Jesus Christ. They are actually seeking to protect him. But it's interesting as to what they say. Verse, 30, uh, verse 21, the NIV uh, translates it like this. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. The, uh, the New American Standard Bible, verse 21, translated like, translates it like this. And when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. You understand? You get the sense. They're not being derogatory. They're not saying, the, the guy's out of his mind. They're not saying that. They're saying, look, look we, we need to save him. We need to get him out of there. He, this, this stuff, it's, it's too much. He's giving himself oh, too, too, over too, too much to these things. To, to these things. He doesn't even eat sometimes. Remember, he says that it's a, my meat is to do the will of my father. He won't even eat. He won't sleep. He goes off into the mountain all by himself. You see, we have to save him from himself. What a, what a thing. The Amplified Bible puts it like this. And when those who belong to him, his kinsmen, when they heard it, they went out to him to take him by force. For they kept saying, he is out of his mind. He's besides himself. He's deranged. This idea of deranged is very interesting because it comes from what the meaning of the Greek word is. <clears throat> the meaning of the Greek word is this, it has, this, it has this inference to it. It refers to somebody who's losing their mind or experiencing, or experiencing a mental imbalance. And again, what we're seeing here, as I said before, it's not derogatory. It's not as though uh, the, 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 the family and the friends of Jesus are trying to belittle him or, be, or, 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 or uh, uh, yes, be, belittle him. But what they are trying to do is, as I said before, they're trying to protect him from himself. We might say it like this. He's engaged in too much activity. He's taken on too much responsibility. There's too much reaction, both good and bad. We need to save him from himself. And isn't this an amazing thing? That this is how the, the friends of our Lord Jesus Christ respond to him. And I guess I can only say this by way of maybe a, an application that is not an immediate application, but an application I think that can be legitimately—I'm sorry—legitimately made to those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. You know what it is sometimes to, to be accused of maybe being out of your mind because of the zeal you have for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know what it is sometimes to be considered as to be uh, maybe uh, uh, just a little bit uh, so, so, somewhat odd because uh, there you are uh, maybe up late at night studying the Word of God or there you are up in early in the morning uh, praying before God and there you are again separating yourself from this one and from that one and seeking to live a holy life. And people just look at you and think, well, you know, what do you expect? These guys are really not all there. And so I want you to see, and I'm not trying, and please, I, I, I don't want to say, I, but I, I value your responses, but, and I'm not try, but I'm not trying to make jokes here, you understand. Amen. I want you to see and understand that sometimes this is the way the people of God are viewed, but don't be set off by it. Here's our Lord Jesus Christ. He's committed to do His Father's will. And should it be, a, should it be an unusual thing in a world that is driving headlong into hell to think you and I are off our rockers? 
Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ in the way the scripture calls us to, but even then we don't love him as we ought. And so again, here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the response of his friends. It's an interesting thing to see his friends trying to save him from himself. Even his friends misunderstand uh, his ministry and the nature of his work. But this is not the only response that we see uh, in this passage of Scripture. What we also see is the response of his enemies. And this begins at verse 22. And notice what we have here. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils he casteth out devils. What a statement this is. The first thing I want you to understand is that this is no, uh, no um, off-the-cuff remark. Uh, by somebody who uh, just doesn't want to grant uh, uh, to another person their due. Uh, you ever feel that way? Uh, you maybe, and I hate to say this, I may be cutting close to the bone here, you know, sometimes we work with our colleagues and the people that work side by side, and we think we're just a little bit better than them. And then somebody comes and compliments them, ah, you know, the guy just, you know, he got lucky or whatever. But that's not what's happening here. You see what's happening here is that this is a this is an official delegation. This is this is a, this has something by way of a statement of where the nation is at at this point. And what we're seeing here, like I said, you're seeing here a response uh, that is born out of information, a response that is born out of responsibility, a, re- a response that is born out of everything by way of what leadership is supposed to do. Religious authority making a declaration. That's what these scribes were doing. And what is the conclusion they draw of his ministry? And of his person even worse. They say again that he is doing all these things. He hath Beelzebub. Now this is very interesting. Beelzebub, many of you probably know this. That this, is a, this is a reference. Uh, uh, really it's a reference ultimately to Satan. It's a reference to, uh, to one of the false gods of, uh, of the Phoenicians, I believe it was. Uh, and, what, and, and it's really, uh, the translation of it is, is the Lord of filth or the, or the Lord of dung or Lord of the flies. It's a very derogatory term. And while, as I said before, his friends were trying to save him from, uh, from himself, and again, nothing by way of a derogatory statement there, uh, there here we see by way of the, uh, the, the scribes, again, this, uh, this very derogatory statement. And what they were saying about him was not merely that he was influenced by an evil spirit. They were saying that he was influenced by, he was under the control of Satan himself. What a thing to say. And as I said before, this was not an off-the-cuff statement. This was not an unguarded statement. This was, an, this was a religious and an informed evaluation that they were making. Again, the, the word Beelzebub here, meaning, uh, meaning either Lord of the dwelling or Lord of filth, it was a title of a heathen deity to whom the, to whom the Jews ascribed lordship over evil spirits. He hath Beelzebub is equivalent to saying he is possessed not merely by a demon, but by Satan himself. You see what they're saying here about the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, it's again the 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 emphasis of it is just amazing to, to behold. But what's interesting is that we find in a number of cases these blasphemous slanders against the person of Christ in the Gospels. It's not unusual, it's not unique to this. He is oftentimes slandered by his enemies, misunderstood by his friends, and slandered by his enemies. In John chapter 10, verse 20, we read this. They say of him, he hath a devil and is mad. Here, these two ideas are brought together. In uh, John chapter 8, verse 48, uh, they, uh, the religious leaders say of him, he is a Samaritan and has a devil. 
Uh, he was accused of being born out of wedlock. Mark, uh, John chapter 8, verse 41. In Luke chapter 7, they said of him, he is a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of sinners. So these slanders against the Lord Jesus Christ are not unique to this passage of Scripture. We see them over and over again. And now what's interesting is essentially this. You see, these religious leaders could not deny what Jesus was doing. Nicodemus says this, doesn't he? We know that thou art a teacher sent from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And so they knew that the Lord Jesus Christ was, as I said before, he was performing, these were true miracles. They had their own Jewish exorcist. And they would not, they would not uh, uh, disallow that they were casting out demons. And so they, they're in this quandary. So how is it then that this prophet from Nazareth is casting out the demons the way that he does? How is it that he has this authority? How is it that he has this power? Well, I'll tell you how he has this power, they say. And they attribute to him, again, this idea that he hath Beelzebul. You see, this is, the, this, is the, this is what is encroaching on this damnable uh, sin that we see. This sin that has this eternal consequence to it. What they are doing is they are attributing to the power of Jesus Christ by way of the Spirit of God. They are attributing that to Satan himself. And so we're going to see how our Lord uh, deals with this. Well, as I said before, the religious leaders, they could not deny <clears throat> that the miracles were being done. But, what they, but, what, but while they could not deny it, what they sought to do was to, was to discredit the Lord, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting. Listen uh, to what um, one man says here uh, by way of this, uh, this official delegation that, uh, that comes down from, uh, from uh, Jerusalem. It's kind of interesting. One man says this by way of a comment. He says, uh, The arrival of a delegation of legal specialists from Jerusalem suggests that, uh, suggests that the Galilean mission of Jesus had attracted the critical attention of the Sanhedrin, again, the, the highest Jewish court in the land. The scribes knew that Jesus was, had, a, had a considerable following and that he possessed power to expel demons. It is possible that they were official emissaries from the great Sanhedrin who came to examine Jesus' miracles, and listen to this, and determine whether Capernaum should be declared, quote-unquote, a seduced city under the prey of an apostate preacher. Such a declaration required a thorough investigation made on the spot by official envoys in order to determine the extent of the defection and to distinguish between the instigators and the, uh, the between the instigators, the apostates and the innocent. And so, as I said before, you have here in this whole episode not just an off the cuff statement, not just a statement made out of out of petty jealousy, but you have here an official response that is given by the religious authorities of the day. They can't deny the fact that he was doing these miracles, so they seek to discredit him. Well, our Lord responds to this. And this is very interesting how, how we see this response, because look what we see here in verses 23 and following. And the first thing I want you to see by way of our Lord's response is the fact that our Lord himself calls these scribes to himself. This is, to me, this is, this is, this is amazing. He doesn't just hear of the accusation and just stay quiet about it. He doesn't hear about the accusation and say to his disciples and to his friends and family, hey, they don't know what they're talking. He doesn't do that. He addresses the scribes himself. Look what we see here in verse 23. And he called unto them and said unto them. He confronted these men. 
And I want you to see something here. He confronted these men. And he didn't confront them in a way to absolutely just condemn them or shut them down. He didn't condemn them on the spot and say, you've just committed. But he calls them. And he interacts with them. And I'm convinced that he's doing this because he's making an appeal to these men. He's not willing to leave these men in that sin. They may not have committed it yet. And so he's warning them. It's a very compassionate thing that our Lord Jesus Christ is doing. Remember how, many, how often times we read, uh, how, how often times we hear when we read in, in, uh, in, in John chapter 19, when Jesus is before Pilate, how that Jesus makes these overtures to Pilate, even while Pilate is the one who is examining him. It's something of the same thing here. You see, our Lord in compassion, he calls them to himself. And as I said before, he doesn't shut them down. He, he engages them. And he says to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Verse 24, and if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, it cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against itself, uh, he, uh, against himself and be divided, it, he cannot stand but hath an end. In other words, division never brought about a kingdom. Division never advanced a household. A division never caused a person's uh, 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 agenda to go forward. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, this is foolishness what you're saying. Satan is not divided against himself. Satan is not working counter to himself. And what you're seeing here and what you refuse to admit or what you're, admit, or what you're granting to me by way, of the, by way of the effect of Satan, what you're seeing is this. There is a real power being exerted over the power of darkness. You see, the kingdom of God has broken in. And, and the strong man is bound. And his captives are being set free. And they are being enlisted in the kingdom of God. And so again, here are these men, and, they, and there's no response here. But I want you to see, as I said before, this is, here's our Lord Jesus Christ engaging these men. I think this is a very wonderful thing to see. Because what we're going to see our Lord do is our Lord is going to, again, say not only by way of the seriousness of the sin, he's also going to reveal something of the beauty of God's grace, even in the face of great provocation. And we find this, again, in verse, uh, 20, verses 28 through 30. Notice what we have here. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wheresoever they shall blaspheme. But he that blasphemed against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Back to verse 28. Verily I say unto you, Here's our Lord Jesus Christ again making this great affirmation, this great statement, this great, this great emphasis even before he says it. Again, it's, really, it's very interesting that, uh, that this is a very unusual thing. Now, we know that in, in, in the Gospel of Mark, I'm sorry, in the Gospel of John, I think some 21 or 23 times we have that double verily or that double amen by our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, giving great emphasis to, to what he is saying. Here in Mark, we see it here. And what's, what's interesting is this, is that this was very uncommon. Because the word amen would, is usually a response to a truth statement that's made. That, that's what amen is. That's why when, um, <laughs> that's why, if I can say it this way, I can't compel you to say amen. You either, you either agree with what's being said or you don't agree with what's being said. But the idea is, is that that amen is a, is, a, is a statement of approval on what's being said. And so for our Lord to put it first, he is reminding us again, he is making his own statement on what he is going to say. 
He is affirming the truthfulness, the truthfulness of what he's saying. And the first thing that is really being affirmed here by way of this verily is the fact that all manner of sin shall be forgiven. This is phenomenal. And let me say this. It's understandable that we miscited this because of the, because of the, the, the grave reality of the, of the sin that hath not forgiveness. And so again, we kind of we kind of move past that kind of quickly, and we see the dreadful reality of that one sin. But one writer, a, a, a man, just has been helped through throughout the years uh, for many generations now. Uh, J.C. Rowell, he catches the the sense here. And what he says, this he says, these words again, the first uh, the first part of the statement here in verse twenty eight. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wheresoever they blaspheme. Ralph says this, these words fall lightly on the ears of many persons. They see no particular beauty in them. But to the man who is alive to his own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. Listen to this. The sins of youth and the sins of old age, the sins of head and the sins of hand, the sins of tongue and the sins of imagination. The sins against God's commandments, the sins of persecutors like Saul of Tarsus, the sins of idolaters like Manasseh, the sins of open enemies of Christ like the Jews who crucified him, the sins of backsliders from Christ like Peter, all may be forgiven. The blood of Christ can cleanse all away. The righteousness of Christ can cover all and hide all from God's eyes. Oh, you see this wonderful reality of what our Lord is saying before he speaks about the, the grave dread of that sin. That's why I'm saying to you, I think our Lord Jesus Christ is making an overture to these men. And I want you to see and I want you to understand that whenever you consider the dreadfulness of this sin, understand that there is, a, there is a beauty and there's a marvel in the grace of God that he would say to you and me, all manner of sin shall be forgiven. Ryle goes on to say this, the doctrine here laid down is the, crown and, is, is the crown and the glory of the gospel. The very first thing it proposes to man is free pardon, full forgiveness, complete remission, without money and without price. This is why the apostle said in Acts chapter 13, through this man is preached unto you forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. Oh, you see this great, this great work of God's grace. But though there is a great flower we might say in this passage of scripture of the reality of sins being forgiven the seriousness remains nonetheless because there is a sin according to our Lord Jesus Christ that has not forgiveness it's very interesting how this passage of scripture has so many different ways in which it could be approached we can approach this passage of scripture from the element of our Lord's divine nature is revealed in that statement you see, it's Jesus Christ as God manifest in the flesh who's able to say what sins will and will not be forgiven. This is an amazing statement. It speaks to us about the reality of the divine nature of the, uh, of the, of the Spirit of God. This one who, who, if he has blasphemed against, there is no forgiveness. There's, there's a number of ways in which this passage of Scripture can be approached, but we must approach it from the standpoint of where we, where, where, where we fall out with this passage of Scripture. And so we come back then to the seriousness of the passage in front of us. And the seriousness is found here in verse 29. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Well, what about this sin, the blasphemy 
against the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable. What is this sin? Well, first thing to understand this is that any time you see the word blasphemy, the word blasphemy has to do with it. It's, it's a sin of speech. It's not. It's not. A, it's, it's. However, it's not a sin that is merely a slip of the tongue. It's a sin of speech that reveals a particular mindset or disposition of the heart. It is a. It is speech that is the, uh, the the manifestation of a hostility toward God and toward the Spirit of God that is fully entered in. And so it's not just again uh, this uh, this inadvertent speech. As I said before, it is something by way of a settled uh, disposition. So what we see here is that it's uh, this, the idea of blasphemy has this idea of, of disrespectful thought, of, of, of thought, uh, I'm sorry, disrespectful speech, of speech that is insulting to God. When we consider the sin particularly, what did it consist of? Well, we've already covered this. It consists of the fact that these men were attributing to Jesus Christ the power of Satan, which they saw to be and knew to be really the power of the Spirit of God. It was evident that what Christ was doing was by the hand of the Spirit of God. And these men chose rather instead to attribute that power to Satan himself. That specifically is what this sin is. In its context, as I said before, that's what it is. They knew the miracles. They knew that no man could do these miracles except God was with with him. Uh, and so what we see here is our Lord Jesus Christ ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. But again, what, what they were saying about him was that it was, the, um, what it, it was uh, the, the power of Satan by which he was doing all these things. Now, why is, this sin, why is this sin unforgivable? Why is it that this particular sin is unforgivable? Well, the thing I want you to see and understand is essentially this. It is unforgivable not so much because of its mere uh, inadvertent expression. As I said before, this is not just a, a word that is, that is inadvertently slipped out. It's not just something that was said uh, either in ignorance or, or by some way of mistake, but rather it is a settled disposition of the soul concerning the work of the Spirit of God in relation to the person of Jesus Christ. And what is happening here is essentially this. The individual who commits this sin is in danger of cutting himself, him or herself off from all influences of the Spirit of God so that the Spirit of God can no longer work in a converting way. The heart is adamant against the things of the Spirit of God. There is a hardness that sets in and then a hostility that, 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 that comes after it. So this hardness and this hostility is what really, again, constitute uh, the nature of this sin. Now again, this is why I said before, you have to understand that this is not merely an isolated act. This is not something that these men just said one time. And it's interesting that we, when we see uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the tense uh, here in the passage of Scripture uh, uh, as to what they were saying, it's not that they said one time, but rather it's because they were saying that he is possessed. And it implies a repetition and fixed attitude of mind. And what we're seeing here are all the, all the results of the callousness which brought, the, which brought these scribes to the brink of unforgivable, of unforgivable blasphemy. And so again, as I said before, it's not, a, it's not a mere mistake or slip of the tongue. It's this settled opposition, this settled disposition of the heart as to how Jesus Christ accomplished what he accomplished. Now, I think the most important question that we ask after this, what is it? Why is it unforgivable? The next question we ask, and this is very important, have I committed this sin? 
or have you committed this sin? This is something, again, I think that we all at one time or another in our Christian life struggle with. Have I committed the unpardonable sin? And what I want you to see is this, that I'm going to give you basically three guidelines as how to answer this question. And the first thing I want to say to you is this. Number one, if, if you are worried about this particular sin, then you've probably not committed this sin. Why is it? Because it is the very nature of the ministry of the Spirit of God to bring about conviction. If you had committed this sin, you would not have that concern of the soul as to whether or not you were guilty of this particular sin. Again, this kind of reflects for us of what we see by way of John 14, that the Spirit of God convicts the world. It is a ministry of conviction. It is a ministry of exposing of our sin. And this convicting ministry goes on in the life of the believer. The life of the believer should, should be one of continually having his heart open before God to where we see our sin for what it is. It's another sin. It's another level of sin that's in our heart that, we weren't, that maybe we, we were not aware of maybe just last week. But now this sin, God is dealing with me with this sin. You see, the ones who have committed this sin never have this kind of work of the Spirit of God within them because they shut, they've shut it all down. One man says this about this matter uh, by way of, the, uh, by way of the, the question as to whether or not a person has committed this sin. He says the following. He says, it is a matter of great importance pastorally that we can say with absolute confidence to anyone who is overwhelmed by the fear that he has committed this sin, that the fact that he is so troubled is itself sure proof that he has not committed it. A person so insensitive to the spirit that he attributes what is of God to the demonic origin will not, have, will not be conscious of having committed the ultimate transgression. In other words, the heart is so hardened that it will, never, it will never interact with this idea, have I committed this sin? The person could care less about it. Which brings me to the, nether, to the second guideline, which is this. The first is if you're worried about it, you've probably not committed it. The second is this, if you don't care that you've committed it, you may have indeed committed it. This is, this is what is the, the unnerving thing. Now, again, there's a difference between ignorance, and we'll get to that here in, in a minute. There's a, there's a difference between ignorance and, and, and between just not caring whether or not you've sinned in this way. You see all these passages that come before us, uh, passages like Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 6, that speak about, again, this, this dreadful sin that individuals can fall into. You see the heart becomes so callous and so hardened that no longer is there this effect of the ministry of the Spirit. Thirdly, this, I would say, if you're unaware that such a sin exists, you've probably not committed it. And why do I say that? Because we read of the Apostle Paul himself. He says the following. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer. He was a blasphemer. Our Lord says that all form of blasphemy shall be forgiven, except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Paul says, again, I, uh, formerly I was a blasphemer a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. You see, so if you're unaware that there's this kind of sin, you've not committed this sin. You see, this sin in one sense is a very, very specific sin. So when we ask ourselves the question, have I committed this sin? In one sense, I have to say this. Only you can answer this question. Because only you can know where you, how you respond to the overtures of the Spirit of God within your soul. Are you, do you come under conviction when maybe you say something that is unworthy of God? Do you come under conviction when you think of thoughts that are not worthy of God? Do 
you come under conviction when you, when you, when you see the work of God being done and, and, and you dismiss it or you think it's not a big deal because it's being done over there and not here? You see, if you're convicted by these things, these are all marks that the Spirit of God is still operative by way of His graces within your soul. But if you have no care of having committed sin of any kind, if sin is just an outmoded kind of religious expression that you think we would be better to do without, if you think that when we talk about the things of God, well, sin shouldn't be mentioned, these are, these, are, these, are, these are bad, these are not good things. And so again, this idea of the sin against the Holy Spirit, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and I want to be very careful because I don't want to leave you in a, in a, in a, in a condition of uncertainty, I don't. But what I want you to see and understand is this, is that the Spirit of God is a very, very precious reality in your life. And what we're going to look at tonight, when we come back here tonight, we're going to take a look at the various sins against the Holy Spirit that are given on the pages of Scripture. There are a number of them. And we should not think of these things lightly. We should not dismiss them as though they're not, not a big deal. We should not think as though the sins that are, that are that against the Spirit of God have no effect. They have, they have a, a serious effect on us. Amen. And so what I would say to you and what I would encourage you to is this, is to, to always have this sensitivity to the things of the Spirit of God. Make sure you understand that the things that Christ does, He does by way of the Spirit of God. And, he, and the Father has sent the Spirit of God to minister in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ that all of His works might be validated, that His, that, that his actions might be validated, that His words might be validated. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ by way of a stamp of divine authority showing who He is. And the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of commentators engage the, the question as to whether or not this sin can even be committed in our day. And the reason why they say that is because it's so specific to the attributing of the, the work of Christ, uh, uh, the work of the Spirit in, in the person of Christ uh, to, the, to, to Satan. And, and the, those, exact, uh, those exact parameters are not with us here and now. But what I would say to you is this. What about, sadly, what about so many of our scholars who engage the person of Christ in such a way as to remove from him and his ministry all reality of the supernatural. And he was just a man of his times. You see, he was just maybe kind of like what you would call maybe, maybe a Jewish exorcist or, or maybe a magician or, or maybe this or that. Or That's what they thought then. You know, They thought that there were miracles, but... In our day, we know there are no miracles. Now, I'm not saying they've committed the blasphemy, but do you see how woefully close it seems to be? Do you see the burden of religious authority? These scribes, they were, they were not just making an off-the-cuff remark. They weren't just saying by way of jealousy, oh, he's getting more crowds than, uh, than, than we are, so let's just, uh, let's just you know, engage the old ad hominem attack. Let's just say something bad about it. They weren't doing that. They were personally denigrating the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were doing it in such a way that would influence others. Could you imagine if some, uh, some great religious authority made a pronouncement on the gospel that you preach and that you believe and they discredited it in the eyes of others? There's responsibility there. There's accountability there. And it reminds us not only of in that day, but in our day as well. Oh, you see the responsibility to... to to speak 
In the name of God, God, give us grace. But I think another thing that's interesting here that we should interact with is this. Though some may question as to whether or not this actual sin can be committed today by way of its specifics, let me say this by way of its generalities. What is it? By way of its overriding principles, what is this sin? Well, once again, it is attributing to the work of Christ the power of Satan. God forbid that we should ever call any work of God an evil-inspired work. You see? We hear, we live in a day where we know people who call good evil and evil good. God give us, God give them grace. The second general characteristic that we see by way of this sin is that it's a sin of the resisting of the Spirit of God. Rather than going along with the Spirit of God and saying, yes, this is the Messiah of God, it's a, it's a, it, it's a sin that resists the work of the Spirit. Friends, have you ever resisted the work of the Spirit of God in your life? You see, these sins against the Holy Spirit are not to be treated lightly. Thirdly, it rejects the witness of Christ. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it rejects the witness of the Holy Spirit to Christ. You know, again, you have, as I, as I said before, you have, you have people, you have, you have whole religious, re- religious movements that say things about the Lord Jesus Christ that are absolutely blasphemous. They are rejecting the witness of the Spirit of God to the person of Christ. Have you ever heard anybody reject what the Scriptures say about Christ? This is the witness of, this is the, witness of the Spirit of God to the person of Jesus Christ, the Word of God. And so that's why we find over and over again in the Scripture such great warning passages. Again, the passage I mentioned, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Malachi chapter, 11, I'm sorry, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. Listen to what God says to the prophet. God says, you've wearied me with your words. Imagine God saying that. You're wearing me out. Imagine God saying that. Malachi 2, 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of judgment? You see these people that challenge the word of God. This is why our Lord Jesus Christ warns us about, about our eyes. He says, if thy eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. You see, when we fall into this, when we fall into this mindset that the word of God is not the standard of what is good and evil, when we fall into this mindset that, that, the, that the intelligentsia of this world and of, of our society today have a better insight into what evil is as to, as to what God has, you understand that the eye is jaundiced at best, if not completely taken out. This is why, again, in the book of Hebrews, the great warning, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew themselves again in the repentance scene, they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. You see these warnings in the scripture over and over. Hebrews 10, if we sin willfully after we received the knowledge of the truth. Hebrews 12, look, uh, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. If any man see a brother sin, a sin which is not unto death. There is a sin unto death, John goes on to say. Well, how do we deal with all these things? And what am I trying to say to you? I'm not trying to confuse you. 
I'm not trying to set these, di- these, these differing things out as, as, as seeing no distinction between them. Number one, understand the reality of the sin that was being spoken of here in Mark chapter 3 is a sin that was, uh, in, in my estimation, it was specific to that time. But by way of its general principles, there are elements of that sin that are, that are present in every age. And there are elements of that sin that we must fight against in every day. We must be on our guard against diminishing the influence of the Spirit of God as to what our view of the Lord Jesus Christ is. We must be on on our guard against uh, against dismissing what the Word of God has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. We must be on our guard that we don't fall prey to what so many arrogant in our day fall prey to. You know, there are people who, who think that they are more moral than God today. And they will call God's morality into question. Well, here we see the responses to our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our applications. And our applications are going to bring to your mind something that you've probably heard about before. You've, I'm sure most of you have heard of that little phrase that Jesus is either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. Some people think that that idea comes from this very passage. They were his friends, and what did they say? Well, he's, he's out of his mind. They, they, were, they weren't being derogatory. They, they were trying to save him from himself. He was lunatic. And they were his enemies. And the best thing that you might be able to say about them is they said he was a liar. But the question is, what do you say about him? Do you say what the Spirit of God is driving at? That he is the Lord and Savior of sinners. The one who will forgive all manner of sins and blasphemies. What a wonderful Savior we have. May God give us grace to always be on guard against these types of sin. May God give us grace to love the Savior who is again so precious to our souls. Let us pray.